to want to know what God is like, what is at his heart, what his being is, what his name is really. Um, it's as important in today's world as it ever was. That's just part of the human, the human heart, the human mind. We want to know what God is like. And there's a lot of, lot of, I suppose you would say misunderstandings about God's character, God's nature, God's personality, especially in his relationship with us. Um, and even within Christianity and even with, within Catholicism. So, so, so often when people reject religion, reject a particular faith, reject Christianity or Catholicism or, or religion in general, it's very often they're reacting to an image of God that we may have propounded, maybe, that is not really what Jesus certainly propounds in these stories. So I have an example uh, of why this is so important. I um, have a cousin, or had a cousin, she's a couple years behind me in age, um, her name was Geneva, and uh, she contracted cancer, and uh, and it was one of those cancers that lingers for a while, and then at the end kind of grows very serious, and the health starts to decline pretty quickly. And um, Geneva had gotten involved in when she was, uh, I suppose in college perhaps, with a little sort of group of Catholics who were very, very, very... Um, unhappy with the changes of the Vatican Council. They thought the new church was all kind of namby-pamby and everything was love and kindness and what we really needed was a church that would be strong and, and forceful and, you know, stand up against the world and all of its evils. And um, that had a big impact on her. She didn't necessarily hang with those people all, all of her life, but it still left a, a mark on her. And one of the things that it left on her was a very, a very harsh image of God God was a vindictive God. God was a God who condemns. God was a God who would send you to hell if you did the wrong things. And that was her vision of God for most of her life. And um, not long before she died, she was in hospice care. She was at our hospice house in Spokane. And her brothers and sisters, my cousins, and their wives asked if we could have a healing mass with her at the hospice center. So I said, sure, that would be wonderful. So we got there and we had a little a little kind of day room that had some beautiful windows looking out over a garden and we set up a little altar and and had uh, her and her brothers and sisters and and um, she was in a wheelchair of course and and their their spouses and some of the nephews and nieces and we were sort of gathered around and the the gospel reading that I was I chose her I don't remember if I chose it or if it was the day, reading for the day I th- it was the good shepherd reading that we heard uh, on the first night and so I, I didn't want to do a lot of preaching, so I just said, let's share with one another some of our ideas or images of, of God as a good shepherd, how that, how we've experienced that in our lives. And I, I gave a little example, and then my cousins started giving other examples, and they were all beautiful of how they had experienced God as a, as a tender God, as a compassionate God, as a loving God, uh, and Geneva was sort of off to the side and, you know, in her chair and, and she had a very serious look on her face. And uh, we finished kind of going around, and then she, it was kind of her turn. She was the only one who hadn't spoken. And she said something to the effect of, you know, I, I must have had a wrong idea about God all these years. I've always been afraid of him. Always been afraid that he would condemn me to hell. I guess I was wrong. 
And that was all she said. And then we finished the Mass and had communion and, and uh, you know, returned to her room. And She died not too many days later after that, maybe a week or two after that. And my cousin, her brother, told me that from that point on, for the first time, Geneva was peaceful as she faced death. For the first time, she was peaceful with the reality of God. And I thought, that is just wonderful. But it also shows how our images of God can, can kind of pervert our relationship with him if, they, if they're not the image that Jesus gives us. And so that's part of the reason why going deep into this particular parable, uh, these three parables, this particular chapter of Luke's gospel, I think is so important. Because I think it is by far of all of Jesus' stories, the one that most clearly and most powerfully paints for us a picture of what God is really like. As Jesus knew God, as Jesus experienced God, his Father, and as he lived his own life as the Son of God in our midst. Um, so I think if we have Jesus' idea of God, then there'll be a lot fewer people who would be saying, no, I don't want to be part of that. You know, I don't like that idea of God. Because who's going to reject a God who's loving? Who's going to reject a God who embraces? Who's going to reject a God who searches and searches and searches for his lost sheep? I don't know, I guess there's people who would. They want a fierce God, a mean God. That's not the God Jesus teaches us to love and know in chapter 15 of Luke's Gospel. So let's get back to the story. So last night we had, you know, the depressing side of the story. You know, it's the story of this poor kid. He's whatever age he is, who knows, maybe 18 years old or something, maybe 19. Uh, wouldn't be too old because uh, people aged uh, a lot faster in those days than they do now. And um, he does this terrible thing to his father, and he doesn't repent of it. It's, it's, he basically commits, you know, the mortal sin by, by turning away from his family, turning away from his father, turning away from his community. He excommunicates himself from his village, from his world, and even from himself, because once he goes out, he has no name. He has no place to call his own. And he wastes the family money, and then comes the famine, and he is still resistant to going back, even with the famine. He finally attaches himself to a farmer who sends him to take care of the pigs. And there he is so hungry because he can't eat the pig food, because he can't digest it. He almost wishes he could become a pig himself. And finally he comes to his senses, and he comes up with a scheme. I'm going to go home. And I'm going to work my father, because I know how to manipulate him. I know how to work him. And I'll get him to take me on as a hired hand, as part of his team, his staff, his, uh, his workers. I'll learn a trade. I'll make some money. Eventually, I'll get back in his good graces. That's his scheme. He's going to save himself. And as we talked about last night, in that scheme, there is no repentance. His speech that he's planning to give is a fake speech. You know, oh, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. 
blah, blah, blah. It's not coming from his heart. It's coming from his scheming head. So anyway, he heads home. He's got enough energy to walk back to wherever, you know, he, from wherever he has been. And he heads home. And so tonight, we want to consider a little bit his father. His father is really the key to this story, obviously. So, you know, we now know um, how terrible this son's deed was. After last night, we know how it was. It almost makes you want to cry. You know, he declares his father is dead to him. That's just awful. It's painful to hear that. And we can imagine what his father must have felt. If we feel that, what his father must have felt experiencing that. You know, what was the effect afterwards? The son's gone. And he's got a broken heart, like major broken heart, like huge broken heart. Um, We can imagine him uh, going into one of those dark, dark depressions that some people can never really get out of. You know, it's just everything is gray. All the color has been sucked out of the world. The sun doesn't really shine. Um, Life has no joy left in it. I can't smile anymore. There's no more twinkle in my eyes. It's all been sucked out of me by this terrible, deathly, deadly thing that's been done to me by my own son when he effectively said to me, you are dead to me. We can imagine that because I suppose that's so human It's a little harder for us to imagine the shame that there descended on this man and his household. You know, in the Middle East, it's still this way today. Uh, The honor of the family is, is the greatest wealth of the family. That's the thing you have to preserve, the honor of the family. And if someone dishonors the family, that's really big. That's worse than stealing money. So for the father, you know, the dishonoring of the family... That was worse than the taking of the money. It's worse than the taking of the money. And he has to live with that, with the villagers, with his kinfolk, with his, 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 his brothers and his in-laws and his, his family, his extended family. From here on in, they're all looking upon him with disgust and disdain because he didn't stop this kid from doing this. To him, his family, and their family, to their tribe. You know, he has to live the rest of his life with the look, you know, the look from his neighbors of disgust and disdain. Because in their point of view, he was not a good father. The very moment that kid came in and said, I want my inheritance, that father should have said, well, the heck you will. You know, you're not getting the inheritance. You're young and you're stupid. And that is not going to happen. And you're going to get disciplined for being so disrespectful. Now get to work. That's what a good father would have done. He would have not tolerated it. But this father did. He let him go. So everybody else is saying, what kind of father was he? To let his children, his child do that to him. So he has to live the rest of his life with everybody in town looking askance at him, gossiping about him, 
telling the story over and over again. Not of how the boy took the money and ran, but of how he let the boy take the money and run. No good father would do that and bring such dishonor upon himself and upon his family. Also in those cultures, kids can be pretty rough. In small towns, I think it's probably true almost everywhere. You know, the little kids run and race around and they're always looking for, for someone to pick on. You know, someone to tease, someone to taunt. And uh, we can only imagine that every time he stepped out to go to the market or go take care of business, the kids were waiting for him. with Some sort of name for him and for his son, his family. So the other day, I mentioned last night, Father Vincent had a lovely image he shared with me that he's had of this this man sitting at his kitchen window, just peering out day after day after day, waiting, waiting, hoping, maybe my son will come home. Probably wouldn't have been a kitchen window. They wouldn't have had kitchen windows. But maybe sitting on the stoop in front of the house, just waiting, discouraged, burdened, depressed, kind of dead, living death in a way. In a way, he is dying. He's dying from heartache. He's dying from heartache. And that's, that's the man as he was before the sun appears in the distance. So the boy comes home, and he's obviously poor. He's probably a skeletal image of his former self, having been lived with famine. Probably smells to high heaven. His clothes are probably nothing but rags, if anything. And the father is the first one to spy him, as Jesus tells the story. There's Father Vincent's image again. He's the first one to see him off in the distance. And this is what should have happened, and what the son expected would have happened, and what everybody in his village would have expected would have happened. So this is what should have happened. As the son re-enters the village, gets close to the edge of the village, he would be met by a crowd of the villagers. They would know he was coming. They would have seen him too. Once word spread that he had also, besides running away, had also lost the family fortune or his share of it in a foreign land among the pagans, the Gentiles, they would have said, okay, it's time for the kezaza, That's the ritual by which they excommunicated him. So they would get a big clay jar. They would make him stand or kneel at the edge of town. They'd get this big clay jar and they'd smash it to pieces. Representing him. They'd smash it to pieces until it was just dust on the ground. And then someone would cry out, or maybe they would all cry out, So-and-so is cut off from his people. That was it. When the pot was shattered and that cry had gone up, he was a goner. He could no longer be part of his people. He was excommunicated. That's our word, but it's the effective word. From then on, no one would have anything to do with him. He would then be obliged, after that ritual to go sit or kneel in the dirt in front of his father's home. 
And he'd wait there a long time before being allowed to see his father. His father would be inside. He would deliberately delay his coming out as a sign of his disgust with his son. Finally, he would come out. He would agree to see the boy. He'd receive him with great anger. He'd scold him. He'd tell him what a terrible son he was. He'd do all the things that a good dad should do to a son that's done this to him. And then he would demand an apology. But he could never be his son again. So if he were lucky, if he were lucky, the father would assign him to go live in another village and work with his tradesmen there for the rest of his life. If he were lucky. And that's what the boy was counting on. He was counting on his father, you know, not killing him, but allowing him to go work with the tradesmen. And then he had this goofy idea that somehow or other, over the course of his lifetime, he could make back enough money to pay off the debts and get back in the village's good graces. Well, that was nonsense. He could never earn that much money being a tradesman. Anyway, so the father would never receive the son back into his household. He would never call him his son. He would assign him a place to his workers. And uh, the family would owe him nothing. And he would have to earn his own bread from there on. That's how it was supposed to go down. What does happen, as Jesus tells the story, is, as the British say, gobsmacking. Gob is your mouth. It's, it's in your face. What does happen is completely counter everything in their culture says should happen. Everything everybody expected to happen. Everything everybody listening to the story as Jesus tells it happens. So Jesus turns the story completely upside down as he does so often. And the people are going... What is he talking about? So what does happen? The father abandons, steps out of his culture, abandons all the cultural norms, everything that a father is supposed to be, all of society's expectations, everything we just talked about, be tough, be mean with the kid, expel him, allow him to live in the village next door. But that's as close as he gets. And only after a good scolding or beating or something. Even to the point of dishonoring himself, the father does not follow the rules of his society and his culture, of his people. Upon seeing the boy approaching, but still at a distance, the father is filled with compassion and then runs to meet him and then embraces him and then kisses him all over. Fathers still do that in the Middle East. They kiss their children all over their faces. It's not a feminine thing. It's a fatherly thing. So, he's filled with compassion. What does that mean? In, in Hebrew, the word, as well as in Greek, The word that we would use for filled with compassion means your guts, your your feelings resided here in your guts. We, We think of our feelings in our heart. They saw their feelings down here. Something is gut wrenching. 
Something is... Um, in the Hebrew people, the, the Greeks saw the bad stuff down here. The, the Hebrews saw the good stuff down here. Sympathy, compassion, feeling. If you tell a beautiful story and you f- feel like you want to cry, it's here. So, even to this day, in the Middle East... People in Palestine and those places, you know, if you're about to leave their home, they're saying, oh, you're cutting me, you're cutting me in my guts. Don't go, don't cut me in my guts. That's how powerful the sentiment is. And that's what this father is feeling. His guts are being cut with emotion and feeling, compassion and love. This kid he's been waiting for day after day after day for God knows how long finally reappears on the horizon. He's overcome with love and feeling and emotion. He goes crazy with it. That's why he forgets all the rules that his society and his culture have propagated about this sort of thing. He goes crazy. And he starts running. And the word in Greek is races. Now he's a fairly old man. He's a gentleman. And in his culture, gentlemen don't run. Anybody over 25 walks around with authority. Walks around with solemnity. You never run. Kids run. Boys run. Maybe little girls run. But you never see a man running like this. And if he's going to run, he's got to do something else. He's got to lift up the hem of his garments if he's going to run and race. And you know, in his culture, the only people who would ever do that? Women. So he is completely, completely shaming himself as he races out to the edge of town to meet his son. One, for acting like a little kid when he's not a little kid, and two, acting like a woman when he's not a woman. Sorry, ladies. It's their culture, not ours. Okay. 2,000 years ago. So, so what he's doing is acting crazy. People think he's gone bonkers but it's not bonkers it's love, it's compassion it's tenderness, it's my son the other thing that happens while he's racing with his skirts up is that the people who've gathered around the son at the edge of town who've probably been harassing him and teasing him and taunting him as he comes back because he stinks and because he's skinny, he's like a skeleton, and because they eventually find out he's wasted all the money, they're getting ready to do the kazaza. They turn and they see the father running down the road to them. And all of a sudden, they're no longer concerned about him, the boy. Their direction, their attention is focused on the father who's acting crazy. And, and instead of insulting and harassing the son, they start laughing at the man. And what is he doing here? He's taking the pressure off the boy. 
He's taking the insult and the shame off of his son and taking it upon himself. Does that sound like anybody we know? Jesus is not dumb. He's been preparing this story for a long time. He knows that the father taking the shame of the son upon himself is him. So, the father finally reaches the boy. And it's not like the scene we portrayed earlier, like it should have been. Instead, the father reaches the boy, crazy in love with him, crazy filled with emotion, his guts torn open. He embraces the boy and begins to kiss him and 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 kiss him. him. That should almost make us cry. Maybe it does. His love for that boy has not diminished one iota, one little bit across these months and perhaps years that he's been away. Maybe his longing for his return and his grief and his depression and his suffering has made him love that boy even more. I heard a story one time. I think it was a priest told me this. It made sense to me because I got ten brothers and sisters. And some guy was trying to go after a mother who was, you know, at a party or something. And the guy asked her, you know, well, which one of your ten children or eleven children do you love most? She says, I love them all. No, which one do you really love the most? I love them all. No, you can't love them all the most because some are more lovable than others and some have give you more trouble than others. Which one do you really, really, really love the most? And she said, you know, you're right. There is one I love more than the others. The one who's sick with the flu. I love that one more than the others while they're sick. The one who's got an earache. That's the one I love more than the others while she's got her earache. And she went on, of course, like that. And I thought, yeah, that sounds like my mom. (laughs) Um, And it sounds like this father. He maybe loves this boy all the more because of what he knows this boy has suffered. Of his own volition, yes. Of his own stupidity, yes. But that doesn't matter to him. The boy was suffering. And he's come back. He was lost. And he's been found. He was dead. And he's alive. Embrace. Kisses. Um, so the boy at this point it's the first time that he understands 
and comprehends in his guts his father's love for him. So all the way back home, he's planning his speech. He's planning his scheme, how he's going to get back on top of things. You know, I'm going to be rich again. I'm going to get this thing figured out. I'm going to make myself a millionaire one more time. This is all going to work out for me. All i got to do is work my old man. But suddenly at the edge of town, he's seen his father running with his skirts hiked up like a little boy, like a lady, crazy with love for him. And he feels his father embrace him and wrap him to his chest. And he feels his father kissing him and kissing him and kissing him and kissing him. And for the first time probably in his life, maybe Maybe not his whole life. Maybe as a little kid, he understood his father's love for him. Somehow he forgot it. But for the first time in this story anyway, he breaks. He's shattered more than the pot in front of him. He's shattered by his father's incredible, crazy love for him. A father who didn't condemn him, didn't judge him, didn't hate him, didn't scold him, but simply loved him, loved him, loved him. All the more because of his sinfulness. All the more because he was dead. The boy suddenly realizes that his father's love for him is what saves him. That's taken the pressure of the harassment of the crowds off of his shoulders and put it on his own. The boy accepts being found. The boy accepts being loved. The boy accepts being given new life and arising because of the love of his father. Reminds us of the sheep on Sunday night. So the great painter Rembrandt, many of you know his work, he has a beautiful painting of this scene, um, and there's a copy of it. We used it in the poster, and also a detail of that painting is on the little prayer card that you have. And you'll notice um, in the hands of the father on the son's back. This is a little bit of a detour here. One hand is masculine, and the other hand is feminine. It's a father's hand and a mother's hand, both. It's a detail that's not in the story Jesus tells, but Rembrandt had a real insight there maybe based on the two previous parables with the shepherd and the housewife. This image of God, the Father, is so tender, it's so tender that it almost has to be both mother and father receiving that boy. There's another picture, the one on the little folder that you have, of a 19th century Belgian sculptor, Constance Mounier. He portrays the same scene in a very different way. It's a bronze 
sculpture. The boy is completely naked. He's kneeling between the knees of his father in beautiful humility, repentance, and spiritual nakedness. He's truly left behind all of that old stuff. It's like he's a new baby, a newborn kid in his father's arms, accepting the father's embrace. The art world loves this story because of this moment, as obviously we do too. So the prodigal son, getting back to him for a moment, is astounded, stunned, shattered even by this encounter with his father. His cold, dead heart has been quickened, brought back to life by the overwhelming love of his father, father and mother. We can imagine him in the embrace of his father, trembling, weeping, as he lets go of his old, dead self and accepts his new self, wrapped in the arms and the kisses of his old man. When he's composed enough to speak, he finally delivers this much-practiced speech that he's been working on for so long. He says the same words that we heard last night, up to a point. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. It stops there. He drops the third line about becoming just another worker for his dad. Because by now, he already knows that's not possible because he's a son again. He's a son again. So there's no treat me as you treat your hired hands here. And this speech which he's been planning for so long turns out to be a real speech from his heart. This one is not a scheme. This one is true humility, having just had his life broken open by his father's love. Now the words come out of his guts, out of his guts, with tears. Father, I've sinned against God and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But grace upon grace, here I am, your son. He was dead. But now he lives. So then the father doesn't stop there. He, there's more work to do. There's more work to do. He now has the responsibility of integrating his son back into his household, back into his village, back into the leadership of the village, so that he will be accepted as son everywhere. So what does he do? The father does. The father orders his servants, who are obviously standing around, 
to go back home and to bring back to them his own best robe. You can imagine something silky with lots of gold trim or something. His best robe. His finest robe. The robe that most deeply identifies him as a man of the village, as someone of substance, of a man of dignity. And to come back with the robe, and he puts it over his son's shoulders. This son and me, we're now one. Anybody want to argue with that? There'll be no mistaking on anyone's part that they are now father and son again. And everybody must treat him the way they would treat the father. They also are asked to bring back a pair of shoes. Slaves don't wear shoes. Maybe sandals, probably not even sandals. Sons wear shoes. And the third thing he tells his servants to get for him is the family ring, the signet ring, the ring that you use to stamp all of your bills, all of your payments, all of your legal papers, everything you sell, everything you buy, all agreements stamped with a signet ring. So when he says put ring on his fingers, he's talking about that ring. And they put the family signet ring on his finger. And this means that this boy is now fully capable of doing the business of his father. He has all authority restored to him. No punishment. No period of, let's wait and see. No parole. No, not parole. uh, What do they call that? Probation. So, this will become a problem in the next part of the story. So, what's the father done? He's had the servants come and dress his son. They now know that they have to treat him with the same respect they treat the father. His father welcomes him in public, on the road, in front of everybody. Everybody in the village witnesses this and now knows that the son is once again the father in the father's embrace. By wearing the father's robe, the village elders know that they have to respect him. And by wearing that ring, everybody knows that his word is as good as his father's word. He's fully restored into the life of the family and the community. No kezaza, no broken pot, no one calling out, you are dead to us. And as with the other two um, parables in chapter 15, the father, of course, calls for a feast. And to show the quality of that feast, the importance of that feast, the out-of-this-world level of joy that the father is experiencing, having his son returned, they kill the fatted calf. Fatted calf is the calf that's been fed grain, which is very expensive. This is like gold in the cattle world of that time. Father Vince, do they still do that? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) 
soul. And we can only imagine, you know, that the explanation he gives on the invitation to the party is what he says aloud. My son was dead, and now he lives. My son was lost, and now he's found. That's all you need to know. And that lost and that deadness are not just having been in another land. It's the deadness of his heart, the lostness of his soul that's been healed here. So, and the whole family and really the whole village is healed. And so together they celebrate. And we can only imagine that um, the man invited his friends, Habarim, into the feast. As Jesus invites the Pharisees into the feast, if you remember way back on Sunday night, who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to the Pharisees and especially to the little guild of uh, super Pharisees called Habarim, the Friends who have been murmuring about him hanging around with sinners and eating with tax collectors. What they've been doing is whining about Jesus doing what they should have been doing, going after the lost sheep of Israel and bringing them back and celebrating their coming home. So in a way, Jesus once again is inviting them in. Come on in, the water's fine. These dirty people, people of the land that you so look down upon, they're God's sheep. They're the valuable coin. They're the son who was lost and is now found, who is dead and is now alive. Because he's found and because he's alive, let us all celebrate. Let us all celebrate. Jesus has got this story right in the faces of those Pharisees. He's not namby-pamby with them. He's not, he's not sort of apologizing for the fact that he likes to hang around with this crowd instead of with the holy people. He tells the story and they know what he's saying. They know this is directed directly at their guts. They should be so moved by this story that they break down, that they're shattered. And they say, yes, we see, we understand. We're so sorry. What can we do to make up for our arrogance? Come to the party. Just come to the party. Eat with us. Their hesitation in accepting that invitation allows or maybe forces Jesus to add a third part to this story. It feels like the story should end with the reconciliation of the Son and the Father. But remember, there's another Son out there. And he, at least at the beginning, isn't at the party. Jesus adds a third segment to the story dealing with that older son in response to the hesitation 
of the Pharisees and the Habarim to join him in the feast. And we'll talk about that one tomorrow. Cliffhanger? You know that, Uncles. Um, that's all for tonight, except for a little more prayer together and a little more feasting together in the back room there. And um, I want to um, thank you again for your responsiveness, for being here. It's good that we're here. Some of you have had wonderful questions to ask me afterwards, and it's been a fun to try and um, figure some of those good questions out. Uh, so please feel free to do that. Um, today, earlier today, about 4 o'clock or so, um, I had a wonderful experience. Uh, it happens once... Well, this is now the second time in my lifetime. So you spend 10 years writing a book, and you work on it, and you work on it, and it's all just in your computer, and it, you're going back, and you're editing, and you're cutting stuff out, and you're adding stuff in for 10 years. And then finally you say, enough already. It is what it is. So you send it off to like a million publishers, and they all say no. And finally one says yes. And then months go by, and months go by. As you wait, and then you have to fix a few more things, and then they want this, and they want your autobiography, and they want stuff, that they blah, blah, blah. And then one day comes, and a big box shows up at your doorstep, and you open it, and there's a bunch of paper in there and filler, and then you pull out for the first time your new book. <laughs> so that happened to me today, and we've got 25 copies of them that were sent down here for, for you. Um, and uh, so besides the one you've already seen, To the Field of Stars, my new book, Beyond Even the Stars, is now in print. Yay! <laughs> and I saw it for the first time here at Holy um, St. Therese Parish in Albuquerque with you. So thank you. You're the first ones to see it in print as well. So. So. Maybe have a hymn or some music, and then we'll have our prayers.